You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Okay, all right, not awake yet. Good. Um, well, yeah, this is the last Sunday. Uh, we spent four weeks now in Psalm 23, and I just pray and hope uh, and as our deep um, desire that this passage has just um, really brought us closer to knowing God, uh, really knowing who he is, that he is the good shepherd. And even that first line to just think through, uh, to really be convinced and to know that he is a shepherd so we shall not want. That can change your life right there. Um, and there's so much more into it. So we're going to kind of cover the last two verses um, today as we kind of come to a close in this little series. There's so much more. And I have to warn you, this could have easily been a couple of ser- sermons. So there might be a lot in here. Um, but, um, but we're going to kind of transition a little bit. So as David writes, he's been writing with this language, very ancient shepherding language of him being a sheep and this shepherd that is guiding and leading him. And he's been putting himself in this position as sheep. Um, and uh, then there's this transition that's happening where now there's this language more of like a host language, more of now this, they're, they're going to somewhere, they're, there is a destination, there is something uh, that, that is on the journey. And so far, the shepherd has been leading, has been guiding, feeding, nourishing, tending to, caring for, and restoring this sheep, which David said is like us. So then we get to this line in verse 5. It says, you prepare a table before me. So I went to uh, Christian high school and middle school from seventh grade to to, um, senior year. And we had this, uh, we kind of had this little home ec class um, that uh, would teach us manners and would teach us how to uh, just have manners, have table manners specifically. And whenever I hear prepare a table, I think of this guy. Does anyone know who this is? Anybody? Am I the only one? Oh my goodness. I had a, I had a sad childhood. So this is, uh, this is Eddie Cat. Um, specifically supposed to be etiquette, Eddie Cat. Um, and this guy in the 90s, he would teach me, he teached me, taught me, teach me? So he didn't teach me how to talk, apparently. He taught me how to set tables, how to do all this kind of stuff, have manners. Do you know what I'm talking about? Eddie Cat? Oh, Luke, thank you, buddy. Yeah, anyways, and he would dress up as a cat, and if he did it wrong, it'd be a catastrophe, right? It was, it was pretty horrendously awful. And, and great. Um, it's why I am the way I am today. To teach good manners. And so uh, I put a, another uh, picture here. This, I think this is courtesy of Martha Stewart. I think this is officially how you're supposed to set a table. You guys probably know you start from the outside in, right? And there's like your bread thing and there's the dessert things and then apparently just a lot of water, right? I don't know. I'm sure cups are used for other stuff. Not so in ancient Middle East culture, right? Or even current Middle East culture, right? It, setting a table, personal place settings are not necessarily a thing in the Middle East, especially not what David would have had in mind if he said, you prepare a table before me. So prepare, prepare a table is more, you prepare a meal. You prepare this meal to be shared in. There weren't individual place settings, right? Bread is passed 
broken, and then used to dip or scoop up the common food around the table for everyone to share. So most foods were more communal at the center, and everyone has their fill of the shared food. This practice, it's beautiful, actually, and invited gratitude, deepening of friendship and trust with one another. And it's the bringing together of two parties to be unified in a common need that all humans have food, right? Hunger is kind of the great equalizer of all humans. All people, when they're really hungry, can come together at a table. And even if they have differences, they can lay them aside and just nourish their bodies together for a few minutes. Another thing about preparing meal is that the host doesn't usually do this job, right? This job, it's the servants or the the sous chef or whatever who would prepare the food, not the master, right? Not the host. The master would recline at the table with the guests, not preparing the table. But David here, he has this like intimate language. He sees something different here. He says, you Lord, the the shepherd who has been leading me, you are the one also who is providing this most excellent meal. You are the one that has not provided it just for me to consume, but for us to be together, for us to eat together and be in relationship. So we might be able to answer in part who this meal is for, but the question is, what is this most excellent meal for? The line goes on, you prepare a meal before me in the presence of my enemies. So I don't know about you, but I've always read this psalm and heard this psalm through the lens of kind of a personal, individual justification kind of way. Meaning when you feel surrounded by your enemies, when you feel pressed in on, on the run from trouble, God will provide for you. And even in when, you, when, when your enemies are right there trying to starve you out, he will set before you a meal to eat in front of them, showing them the folly of their ways. And there is kind of a beauty in that, right? Some of the times, in Dave, especially in David's story, this is true. So many times in David's life, God provided something like a feast for David, and it was in, the, in terms of justice, right? He kind of serves it up for David to be able to partake, right? You think about when he argues with Saul about how he can take on Goliath, and he says, once I fought lions and bears, but not tigers, so we can't say, oh my. But remember, defeat, and then he went to get to uh, Goliath, and he defeated him, right? There's these ways that all of a sudden God has kind of served this up for him. Victory in battle after battle where the odds were against him. So there is a reading of God providing even in the midst of, en- even in the midst of en- enemies or calamities, and this is good and true. There's vindication for, the, for those who feel lowly, for those who feel cast down, for the scared and on the run, for the martyrs of the faith and those who have been abandoned due to their beliefs. But there's something that didn't quite settle right with me to just read this and to say, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies, so it's all for me. It's just for me to consume and to consume and to consume, and that's all it is. There's something that doesn't feel right about that. And I want to try to expand our thinking, a little thought experiment, to just look at this phrase a little bit differently, okay? So there's much we know about sheeps and wolves, right? This instantly brings up pictures in our minds. And the picture of a hungry wolf chasing after the lamb, and especially when the lamb is hungry is tired, is scared. And you think about the lamb as David's been riding for the sheep, this lamb to feel in that protected. 
and then to lead to even an abundance of table, of food and water too afresh. What a beautiful picture that is because it doesn't make sense. That lamb would never be able to be secure or satisfied knowing the wolf is chasing, right? Knowing it can take a breath because God, the good shepherd, has covered this lamb. God is good. God is leading, right? But God, the good shepherd, though he will protect his lambs from the wolf, there's also a deep understanding in theology that God also made and loves the wolf. Right? God is the God of all creation. He knows the wolf and the lamb are at odds, are in opposition, but there has always been this vision of restoration, of a different way of life. And this is what I want to expand our minds today. There is not a more powerful picture of this restorative thought than what the prophet Isaiah uh, references. He references this new kingdom that will be established with a new set of ways, a land with new laws, and a new king that will embody this new world. We usually read this around Christmas time, so it'll sound familiar. Isaiah 9, chapter 6, when this, this kingship fulfillment is, was in baby Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And this will be established through the throne of David and will last forever. Okay, we know this. We've probably heard this before. This is the new kingdom of God that he is establishing, the new land that the good shepherd is leading his people into. But the rules are different here. It's not just about survival or consumption or individual justification apart from their enemies. There's more to this vision of a new kingdom and the rules of this land. Two, two chapters later, Isaiah continues about this new land. And look at this. Isaiah 11:6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. What an incredible vision. That's a wholly different way of living, right? This is the story David has lived in over and over again. The Lord has prepared a table, not for the people to be isolated, kind of get fat and sassy in their own little way and find their own salvation. But as he's always said from Abraham, to be blessed, to be a blessing to all of the nations. Why else, a couple thousand years later, when God in the flesh came down to earth to fulfill all that he's been doing through David, through his people, would Jesus teach this in Matthew 5? You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's an initial reading of you prepare a table before me, for me before my enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Right? The king himself, that king that was the son born to us, he in this new kingdom teaching, teaches this radical upside down value of actually inviting even an enemy to the table. Maybe the table's not just for us to consume, 
David says the table is set before him in front of his enemies, and he has a choice to make, to make peace or to seek justice. Both might be from the Lord. That's why the table is set. But there is discernment needed on what this blessing of the table is truly for. Because the enemy not, oh, it might not always be who you think it is or out there against you. Think real quick of the prodigal son story. When the prodigal son returns, who was his enemy? Who was the one who was angry with him, upset that this one would get to even come back home and eat? Who was upset with him? The older brother, inside his own family. Sometimes the enemy isn't as obvious, and it comes from the inside, not the outside. If this psalm was all about personal justification, that our conclusion would be building walls, keeping all the wolves out to die. But God has a different view of his kingdom, and it's a different call and a different posture for those who are in that kingdom. One of the reasons I feel very strongly the table of, uh, that David is thinking about is not just for himself to indulge, is because of how many times the opportunity came for David to do this. A feast was set up for him, and he could have just taken it for himself, where it seemed like God had dished up for David's sweet victory and retribution, but what was counted to him as righteousness was his decisions to discern what to do with this metaphorical prepared meal. I want to give you three examples today. Saul in cave is what I titled this one. Real quick, Saul was jealous of David and convinced that David was trying to kill him and take his throne, so he pursues David to kill him, okay? He brings an army to where he has heard David is hiding out, and this happens, 1 Samuel 24. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. You guys know what that means? Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day in which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you should do to him as it shall seem good to you. This table, this feast. And afterward, oh, then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. What an intense scene, right? Verse 8, afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. Some told me to kill you, but I spared you. And he shows him the piece of the cutoff robe. Here's how Saul responds. First Samuel 24, 17. He said to David, you are more righteous than I. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And Saul relents. That scene easily could have been a horrific bloodbath, right? Easily could have just been the story of like, God gave you victory. He provided for you. Just take it. Just consume. But he set the table up and he said, David, make the choice. Second one, 
Saul in camp. <laughs> I'm very creative with these. First Samuel 26. So David, oh, sorry, let me give you a little bit uh, of background. So a short, Saul relents after the cave. He's like, okay. And then like a few days later, he's like, oh, no, I want to kill him. So he goes right back. Saul tries to pursue him again. David sees, he's up on a little cliff, and he sees Saul's encampment. He has this army, and he's searching after David. David gets an idea, and he asks who would go with him, and one of his mighty men, uh, Abishai, goes with him. So this is 1 Samuel 26. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I love this. I will not strike him twice. I am such a good spearsman. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Uh, skip to verse 12. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any wake, for they were all asleep because of the deep sleep the Lord had fallen upon them. So David, he goes back up to this cliffside and he shouts down, verse 18. He said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? And he shows him the, the spear and the water jug. Look at how Saul responds, verse 21. Saul says, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Wow. Like, how incredible this, these scenes over and over. These could have easily and obviously gone one way, but there is something different in this new king way of thinking. The Lord has been serving up these feasts, but David has to discern what the meal is for, peace or justice. There's many examples. I just want to give one more. Years after Saul, David's own son, Absalom, is chasing David out of Jerusalem, creating a civil war against him to divide the nation. Some sided with Absalom as king and some still with David. Absalom has driven David and his men into the desert. He's been pursuing them with a much bigger army, so many more supplies. David and his men cross the Jordan River. They're tired, they're weary, they're hungry, constantly looking over his shoulder. They've got nobody else. But then you read this story, and it's really worried, really so I'm just going to tell you real quick. David, to David's surprise, all of these allies just start coming out of the woodwork. And they start bringing stuff to them. This is 2 Samuel 17, 28. They, br they brought beds for them. They brought basins and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds and sheep and cheese from the herd for David and the people for him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Now just think about that. If this is what David has in mind when he says, you prepare a table for me, to think about that moment of like my own son's hunting to kill me. I remember all the stuff with Saul, but right here, there's a provision by the community, a provision here for this incredible nourishment. They're revitalized, they eat, and instead of then just being wiped out, Absalom's army crosses the Jordan River and David's army actually defeats them, defeats them utterly, and then he gets to go back home. 
And it's hard to think that in these situations, they're not fresh in David's mind when he writes about God preparing for him a table in the presence of his enemies. God has prepared many situations for him in his life, but he, again, has had to discern when it was for making peace and when it was for justice. And that discernment is really key in this next line. David continues in Psalm 23, you anoint my head with oil. So going back to a typical, going back to the dinner kind of situation that David has put us in with all that in mind, right? The host would be reclining at the table, would often have a guest of honor. This guest would then be close to the host, and the host would anoint this person's head with a little bit of oil as a show of honor and respect. So keeping with the dinner analogy, not only does David declare that God is faithful to provide, but he even anoints my head with honor. But again, this is not just David describing a dinner meal with the Lord, right? Like everything in this psalm, David's artful language is not just about eating dinner. It's anointing with oil has always been a phrase, not only for kingship in its practice, and he was anointed with evil in his kingship, but acknowledging a link between heaven and earth. Now, I told you there'd be a lot. I, I can't get into this. I would encourage you that the Bible Project has a series. I think it's a seven or eight part series called The Anointing, I think it's called, or Anointed. It's unbelievable. It blew my mind. Just, and there's so much about just little oil that you can learn, which is crazy. Um, but go check that out. But anointing with oil has been a day one practicing throughout the scriptures of bringing heaven and earth together. Heaven kind of colliding with earth. And as this psalm, as we looked at a few weeks ago, as this puts us back into Genesis, where God's presence was unveiled completely before his people, and there was harmony in heaven and earth. And when things started to unravel, God in his faithfulness has given ways and opportunities to merge heaven and earth back together again in restoration. On your own time in Exodus chapter 30, you can go read about the people making a very specific uh, anointing oil. There's actually a recipe in there. They were to make this wonderful smelling perfume uh, anointing oil with spaces like this sappy myrrh and this kind of sweet smelling cinnamon and aromatic cane and like other things that were just unreal. And they were not to be used as a regular perfume, but to only use to consecrate things set apart for God. And the anointing oil was to be used on the tabernacle in the wilderness to set this tent apart. The tent of meeting, the utensils in the tabernacle, all the furniture, you can go read that stuff. Things that were set apart for God and for God alone. Because the tabernacle and the things of it, of it were supposed to be a meeting place for God and his people. The spices and the aroma of the oil was to be a nod back to as if you were in Eden. Around all of those plants, around all of those smells, the beautiful, perfect garden once again, where heaven and earth collide. And David, in Psalm 23, is painting this poetic picture of where heaven and earth collide in the anointing, where God is restoring his creation back to himself. David has already written that he restores my soul, and now he's pointing to the fact that God has anointed him to be a restorative agent. God does not just anoint to have a king. He anoints to bring chaos to order like Genesis and to point towards the king of kings and the kingdom that will be forever. So God provides a table for David to discern what to do with it. And he anoints him, giving him the heavenly discernment here on earth to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. 
God is merging heaven and earth through David and his kingdom. So David then writes this, my cup overflows. Right, cup here is such a fascinating phrase. It's two sides of the same coin. It can mean both victory and blessing, and it can also mean suffering. Right, I want to read you real quick. In Saul's death, remember we read about these situations where Saul was pursuing him, and David had the chance and all this stuff. In Saul's death, when, when Saul finally died on the battlefield, David heard of this, and even though this was a victory for him, there's a blessing for him because now he's not being pursued. This is how he responded, 2 Samuel 1.11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Intense suffering, mourning, fasting. Right? This, should have been, this could have been a victory for him, and yet this is what the cup represents. It's victory, but often through suffering. Absalom, his son, died. In his death, we just read about how Absalom just hated his father, went out to kill David. And if you read more about his story, Absalom was not a good dude. He had a lot of unrighteousness in his life. Nevertheless, when David heard of his death, 2 Samuel 18, and the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, whom I had died, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Most famously, the cup should bring us to Jesus. Even Jesus in his misery of going to the cross when he is alone in the garden before he's betrayed, he prays this, Matthew 26. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. And then the resolve, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we all know the cross was victory, but through much suffering. Again, the blessing of God that David is experiencing is the blessing of being a partaker of the heaven and earth collision, but this often comes in and through suffering. Okay, so you might be sitting there and be like, okay, that's, what, what does all this have to do necessarily with me or how I experience Psalm 23, okay? Here's why I wanted to get into all that. I, again, I have a hard time reading Psalm 23 and just thinking it's about us consuming the goodness of God. Like we can all walk away today, we have the opportunity to walk away today still controlling our own lives and on top of that, reading that God will lavishly uh, a grace us with a banquet and overflow our cup and bless us. Like, why would we not want that? That sounds great to kind of have our cake and eat it too. But over and over again in the scriptures, there's a call to deny yourself. That is the first and foremost call. Psalm 23 is full of beautiful language that can cast, that, that, can, uh, uh, that can rest, have rest for a weary soul. But the rest we actually need and the rest, David, I believe, is talking about is repentance from trying to be our own God, acknowledging that we are sheep in need of a shepherd. Jesus says it's in the losing of our life that we will find it. And losing our life often means suffering, right? It's victory and suffering. There has to be a belief that what we are surrendering to and being led through is actually better for us than what we could do ourselves. 
David has constantly come back to realizing himself as a sheep in his own story. And that's hard to do, isn't it? Right? We are the hero of our own story, right? Like we are the main characters of our own story. But what if that's not quite what we're learning here? What if the point of our story is less of us and more of him in and through us? What if we, like David, are anointed to do his will, not our own? For David, through all the highs and all the lows, he comes back to being the sheep and surrendering to the Lord as his shepherd. This is why we can finish the psalm in the next few lines. David writes, So surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Surely, meaning known without doubt. David's saying, I know this to be true. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Some translate goodness and steadfast love instead of mercy. Now, these words are very specific. I just want to get into it for a second. Goodness is the Hebrew word tov. Mercy or steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed. You kind of have to chesed, right? Tov is what God called his creation in the beginning because God is tov. God is good. Both of these words mean God's unfailing goodness and the never stopping love that he lavishes upon his people and those who follow him. And I don't know if it's a Western thought thing or maybe just like an American Christian thing or something, but this is so often like, oh, surely, surely God can see me and how well I'm doing. Like, surely I have no doubt if God had to pick between me and these other sinners, I'd win that fight every single day, right? But David isn't talking about what he deserves as he is following God. He's talking about God following him even when he doesn't deserve it. Or more accurately, God pursuing him. The same word for follow is the word for pursue. David says, I have no doubt that God's goodness and love are pursuing me. And it's not about just being objects of God's projecting his goodness and love on. Goodness, tov, and chesed, steadfast love, are descriptions in the very name and nature of God itself. Real quick, back when Moses was on the mountain, the Israelites were impatient. They made the golden calf because they just wanted a God. God was furious, but Moses interceded and he asked God this question. Exodus 33, 18. Moses says, please show me your glory. And he said, God said, I will make all of my tov, my goodness, pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And let me, <clears throat> let me read the name of the Lord over us today. Exodus 34, 6-7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And we don't have time to unpack all of that, but like Moses, David here wants God to show him his glory. His shorthand of God's name here is to, is to allow that goodness and mercy to wash over him and remind David of who he is. 
God's goodness and mercy are parts of the whole. God is goodness and steadfast love. He embodies the very essence of these things. And as David has already written that you are with me, he knows I, you are with me, he knows God is not only guiding David like a shepherd to the great banquet he's prepared for David, he's also pursuing David, keeping him in step with the way he should go in his goodness and steadfast love. Hinting back to this shepherding language again, and that the, the shepherd, when he's leading the sheep back home, often has to look behind him for pursuing predators or wolves. And to quote one last time, Kenneth Bailey, who we've looked at a couple of times um, in this series, as he lived and pastured among shepherds in the Middle East, said this, on the way home at the end of each day, the shepherd knows there is the danger of a wolf or some other predator following the returning herd in the hope that a young or injured sheep might lag behind and become easy prey. If the shepherd has an assistant, one of them will naturally follow closely behind the herd for the specific purpose of preventing such an eventuality. If the shepherd has a dog, that animal can take up the rear guard position but if there's no assistant shepherd and no dog, the shepherd himself can be the rear guard. I find that, that picture very helpful, right? For here, David writes, the Lord himself has taken up all of the positions to surround David with his goodness and mercy. He is the one leading. He is the one with them in the midst of their traveling. And he is the one behind them, pursuing them, protecting them with his goodness and never stopping love. This is why David concludes the way he does in this psalm, knowing God has not abandoned him. Even when many times in his life, he did, he did have to look over his shoulder. He was scared and seeing wolves all around him. He knew God was with him. He has anointed his head with oil, meaning David to be covered in the unique blessing of the goodness and steadfast love of God, able to do his will on earth as it is in heaven. His blessing cup overflows with victories, often through suffering. And David unearthed something uncomfortable for us here. To be blessed by God is not to have the absence of pain or fear or anxious thoughts. The blessing is to have a God who is there with you in all of that whose goodness and mercy surrounds you in times of joy and in times of heartache. The blessing is a God who will never leave you nor forsake you. So this is why David here can conclude, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Or another translation is all the days, all of my days. What comes to your mind when you hear the house of the Lord? Just heavenly glories, the temple in Jerusalem, maybe the modern church. What was David picturing when he wrote this? Now, remember, David is not the one to build the temple. He did not have this glorious temple that he visited every day. His son Solomon was the temple builder. David was the leader of the people. David didn't necessarily have a place in mind when he wrote this. But one story I think could unlock for us that David would have been familiar with because it's in his history, it's in his ancestry. And I think gets at the true meaning is actually back in Genesis 28. If you remember the story, Jacob. Jacob stole his brother Esau's blessing and he ran away for the sake of his life. On his journey, he lays down with a rock as his pillow. I've been backpacking a few times. That's not, that's not good. That's not a good thing, okay? 
and he's had this dream. And they saw the stairway all of a sudden leading to the heavens, the heavens opening up, and he's perceiving God's goodness and his mercy. He does this, Genesis 28, 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar, and he poured oil on top of it, and he called the name of that place Bethel. And who, does anyone know what Bethel means? House of the Lord. For David, God's presence, he's writing, he knows this. He knows this. He said, for, for David, God's presence wasn't somewhere. It was someone with him. A presence that could invade any space at any time. For David, if the Lord is his shepherd, leading him exactly where he needs to be, not wanting, not giving into fear, allowing himself to be led even through hard times, knowing that the one leading is also following behind him with goodness and love, then he can be in a very real state, real-time state, of experiencing heaven and earth colliding right where he is at. In very real time, not in some future moment, but right where he was at, David could experience on earth as it is in heaven because God has met him and was with him. The entire goal of moving through Psalm 23 these last four weeks is for us as a people to stop, to be still, and to know God. Our God is not a distant idea. He's not a cosmic vending machine. We can just ask for things when we need them. He's not a fantasy or a religious superstition. Our God is with us. Jesus himself is the good shepherd. Jesus came to, down to earth to call his own to him. And the challenge is, do we surrender to that? And here's why it's challenging, church. Not because we, we probably all agree that Jesus is the good shepherd. That's not the challenge. The challenge is we have a hard time seeing ourselves as sheep. Jesus is the one pursuing and saving the lost, the sick, the weary, and the broken. Jesus has come to draw his wandering sheep back to the fold. And many of us have questions and we have resistance to that voice. Some of us having God with us is not actually what we want. That sounds really terrifying, right? We want to distance ourselves because we like our own kingdom too much and God will confront your kingdom. Here's the thing, we're not alone. The Jews in Jesus's day had questions in real time when they too struggled with Jesus in the flesh saying to them as they knew it so well, I am the good shepherd to you. They had questions, they questioned, and they just wanted to know, just tell me, are you the real deal or not? Just tell us. This is John 10, 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
Christ has told us he is the good shepherd. Do we believe that? Could we as a church be full of people willing to lay down our pride, surrender ourselves to that good shepherd, to hear his voice, to know that he knows you and to follow him? See, guys, this psalm is not just something to memorize or teach through, but it teaches us over and over again that we are like sheep, are prone to wander, but Jesus is the good shepherd who wants to lead us, is with us, and pursues us with an unfailing goodness and steadfast love. Amen?